Chapter Six of Robert Falconer by George MacDonald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Robert Falconer by George MacDonald. Chapter Six. Mrs. Falconer. Meantime, Robert was seated in the parlor at the little dark mahogany table, in which the lamp shaded towards his grandmother's side shone brilliantly reflected. Her face being thus hidden both by the light and the shadow, he could not observe the keen look of stern benevolence with which, knowing that he could not see her, she regarded him as he ate a stick oat-cake of Betty's skilled manufacture, well loaded with the sweetest butter, and drank the tea which she had poured out and sugared for him with liberal hand. It was a comfortable little room, though its inlaid mahogany chairs and ancient sofa covered with horsehair, had a certain look of hardness, no doubt. A shepherdess and lamb, worked in silks whose brilliance had now faded halfway to neutrality, hung in a black frame with brass rosettes at the corners, over the chimney-piece, the sole approach to the luxury of art in the homely little place. Besides the muslin stretched across the lower part of the window, it was undefended by curtains, there was no cat in the room, nor was there one in the kitchen even, for Mrs. Falconer had such a respect for humanity that she grudged every morsel consumed by the lower creation. She sat in one of the armchairs belonging to the hairy set, leaning back in contemplation of her grandson, as she took her tea. She was a handsome old lady, little, but had once been taller, for she was more than seventy now, she wore a plain cap of muslin lying close to her face and bordered a little way from the edge with a broad black ribbon which went round her face and then turning at right angles went round the back of her neck her grey hair peeped a little way from under this cap a clear but short-sighted eye of a light hazel shone under a smooth thoughtful forehead a straight and well elevated but rather short nose which left the firm upper lip long and capable of expressing a world of dignified offence rose over a well-formed mouth revealing more moral than temperamental sweetness while the chin was rather deficient than otherwise and took little share in indicating the remarkable character possessed by the old lady after gazing at robert for some time she took a piece of oat-cake from a plate by her side the only luxury in which she indulged, for it was made with cream instead of water. It was very little she ate of anything, and held it out to Robert in a hand white, soft, and smooth, but with square fingertips and squat, though pearly nails. "'Have, Robert,' she said, and Robert received it with a, "'Thank you, Granny,' but when he thought she did not see him, slipped it under the table and into his pocket." She saw him well enough, however, and although she would not condescend to ask him why he put it away instead of eating it, the endeavour to discover what could have been his reason for so doing cost her two hours of sleep that night. She would always be at the bottom of a thing if reflection could reach it, but she generally declined taking the most ordinary measures to expedite the process. When Robert had finished his tea, instead of rising to get his books and betake himself to his lessons, in regard to which his grandmother had seldom any cause to complain, although she would have considered herself guilty of high treason against the boy's future if she had allowed herself once to acknowledge as much, 
He drew his chair toward the fire and said, Grandmamma. He's going to tell me something, said Mrs. Falconer to herself. Will it be about the poor barefoot creature that they call Shargar, or will it be about the piece he put into his pooch? Weel, laddie, she said aloud, willing to encourage him. Is it true that my grandfather was the blind piper of Port Cloddy? Ay, laddie, true enough. Hoots now, nay, your grandfather, but your grandfather's laddie, my husband's father. Who came that aboot? Well, ye see, he was oot in the forty-five, and after the baddie of Culloden, he had to run for it. He was not with his own clan at the battle, for his father had brought him to the lawlands when he was a lad. But he played the pipes till a regiment raised by the laird of Port Cloddy, and for weeks he had to hide among the rocks, and they took all his property from him. It was not muckle, a wheen horses in a kale-yard or twa, with a bit farmy on the tap of a cold hill near the seashore, but it was enough and to spare, and when they took it from him he had nothing left in the world but his sons. Your grandfather was born the very day of the battle, and the very day at the news came the mother died. But your great-grandfather was not long or he married another wife. He was such a man as only woman might have been proved to marry. She was the daughter of an Episcopalian minister, and she keepeth a school in Port Cloddy. I saw him first myself when I was about twenty. That was just the year afore I was married. He was a considerably old man then, but as straught and as elwand and just poorful beyond belief. His wrist was as thick as both mine, and years and years after that, when he took his son, my husband, and his grandson, my Andrew, what ails ye, Granny? What for did not ye go on with the story? After a somewhat lengthened pause, Mrs. Falconer resumed, as if she had not stopped at all. And in ilka hand, just for the fun of it, he kneeped it their heads together, as given they had been two stalks of rib grass. But maybe it was the laughing of the two lads, for they thought it unco fun. They were most killed with laughing. But the last time he did it, the poor old man coughed sore after him, and had to go on and lay doon. He did not live long after that, but it was not that it killed him, he can. But who came he to play the pipes? He liked the pipes, and your grandfather he took to the fiddle. But what for did they call him the blind piper of Port Cloddy? Because he turned blind long afore his end came and there was naething other he could do, and he would aye make an honest bowby when he could, for siller was fell scarce at that time of day among the falconers. So he got through the tune at five o'clock ilka morning, playing his pipes, to let them at were up ken they were up in time, and them at were not that it was time to rise. And syne he played them again aboot aught o'clock at nicht, to let them ken at it was time for decent folk to go on to their beds. You see, there was not so many clocks and watches by half then as there is new. Was he a good piper, Granny? What for spare ye that? Because I told that sunk Lumley. Call naebody names, Robert. But what right had ye to be speaking to a man like that? He spake to me first. Where saw ye him? At the boar's head? 
And what right had ye to go on standing aboot? Ye ought to have gone in at once. There was a half dozen of folks standing aboot, and I behooved to speak when I was spoken till. But ye boot and not stop and make all fool more. It's not that calling names, Granny. Deed, laddie, I doot ye have me there. But what said that fellow Lumley to ye? He cast up to me that my grandfather was nothing but a blind piper. And what said ye? I dared him to say it he did not pipe well. Well done, laddie, and ye might say it with a good conscience, for he would not have been piper till his regiment at the Battle of Culloden, given he had not piped it well. Yon's his kilt hanging up in the press in the garret. You'll have to grow, Robert, my man, afore ye fill that. And was was that blue coat with the bonny gowd boltons upon it? asked Robert, who thought he had discovered a new approach to an impregnable hold, which he would gladly storm if he could. Let the coat sit. What has that to do with the kilt? A blue coat and a tartan kilt go on no well together. Except in an old press where nobody sees them. You would not care, Granny, would ye, given I was to cut off the bonny buttons? To not lay a finger upon them, you would be gone playing at pitch and toss or other such ploys with them. Nay, nay, let them sit. I would only exchange them for marbles. I dare ye to touch the coat or anything other that's in that press. Weel, weel, Granny, I's go on and get my lessons for the morn. It's time, laddie. Ye have been jabbering or muckle. Tell Betty to come and take away the tay things. Robert went to the kitchen, got a couple of hot potatoes and a candle, and carried them upstairs to Shargar, who was fast asleep. But the moment the light shone upon his face, he started up with his eyes, if not his senses, wide awake. "'It was not me, mother. I tell you, it was not me.' And he covered his head with both arms, as if to defend it from a shower of blows. "'Hold your tongue, Shargar. It's me.' But before Shargar could come to his senses, the light of the candle falling upon the blue coat made the buttons flash confused suspicions into his mind. "'Mother, mother,' he said, "'ye have gone o'er far this time.' There's our money of them, and they're no the safe colour. We'll be both hanged, as sure as there's a devil in hell. As he said thus, he went on trying to pick the buttons from the coat, taking them for sovereigns, though how he could have seen a sovereign at this time in Scotland I can only conjecture. But Robert caught him by the shoulders, and shook him awake with no gentle hands, upon which he began to rub his eyes and mutter sleepily, Is that you, Bob? I have been dreaming, I doot. Given ye did not learn to dream quieter, ye'll get you and me to in more trouble, nor I care to have about ye, ye rascal. Hold your tongue of ye, and eat this potato, given ye want anything more, and here's a bit of reamy cake to ye. You will not get that in the Ilka house in the toon. It's my granny's especial. Robert felt relieved after this, for he had eaten all the cakes Miss Napier had given him, and had had a pain in his conscience ever since. "'Who got ye a hold of it?' asked Shargar, evidently supposing he had stolen it. "'She gives me a bit now and then.' "'And ye did not eat it yourself, eh, Bob?' Shargar was somewhat overpowered at this fresh proof of Robert's friendship, but Robert was still more ashamed of what he had not done. He took the blue coat carefully from the bed, and hung it in its place again, satisfied now from the way his granny had spoken, 
or rather declined to speak about it, that it had belonged to his father. "'Am I to rise?' asked Shargar, not understanding the action. "'Na, na, lie still. You'll be warm enough wantin' the sovereigns. I'll let ye oot in the mornin' afore Granny's up, and ye mount make the best of it after that, till it's dark again. We'll settle aboot it at the school the morn, only we mount be circumspect, ye can. Ye could not lay your hands upon a drop of whisky, could ye, Bob?' Robert stared in horror. A boy like that, asking for whisky, and in his grandmother's house, too. Shargar, he said solemnly, there's no a drop of whisky in this hoose. It's awful to hear ye mention sich a thing. My granny would smell the very name of it a mile away. I do it that that's her fit upon the stair already. Robert crept to the door, and Shargar sat staring with horror, his eyes looking from the gloom of the bed like those of a half-strangled dog. But it was a false alarm, as Robert presently returned to announce. Given ever ye so muckle as mention whusky again, no to say drink a drop of it, you and me part company, and that I tell you, Shargar, said he emphatically. I'll never look at it, I'll never mint at dreamin' of it, answered Shargar coweringly. Given she puts it into my mouth, I'll spit it oot, but given ye strive with me, Bob, I'll cut my throat, I will, and that'll be seen and heard tell of. All this time, save during the alarm of Mrs. Falconer's approach, when he sat with a mouthful of hot potato, unable to move his jaws for terror, and the remnant arrested halfway in its progress from his mouth after the bite, all this time Shargar had been devouring the provisions Robert had brought him, as if he had not seen food that day. As soon as they were finished, he begged for a drink of water, which Robert managed to procure for him. He then left him for the night, for his longer absence might have brought his grandmother after him, who had perhaps only two good reasons for being doubtful, if not suspicious, about boys in general, though certainly not about Robert in particular. He carried with him his books from the other garret room where he kept them, and sat down at the table by his grandmother, preparing his Latin and geography by her lamp while she sat knitting at white stocking, with fingers as rapid as thought, never looking at her work but staring into the fire, and seeing visions there which Robert would have given everything he could call his own to see, and then would have given his life to blot out of the world if he had seen them. Quietly the evening passed by the peaceful lamp and the cheerful fire, with the Latin on the one side of the table and the stockings on the other, as if ripe and purified old age and hopeful, unstained youth had been the only extremes of humanity known to the world. But the bitter wind was howling by fits in the chimney, and the offspring of a nobleman and a gypsy lay asleep in the garret covered with the cloak of an old highland rebel. At nine o'clock Mrs. Falconer rang the bell for Betty, and they had worship. Robert read a chapter, and his grandmother prayed in extempore prayer, in which they that looked at the wine when it is red in the cup, and they that worshipped the woman clothed in scarlet and seated upon the seven hills, came in for a strange mixture in which the vengeance yielded only to the pity. Lord, lead them to see the error of their ways, she cried. Let the rod of thy wrath awake the worm of their conscience, that they may know verily that there is a God that ruleth in the earth, did not let them go on to hell, O Lord, we beseech thee. As soon as prayers were over, Robert had a tumbler of milk 
and some more oat-cake, and was sent to bed, after which it was impossible for him to hold any further communication with Shargar. For his grandmother, little as one might suspect it who entered the parlour in the daytime, always slept in that same room, in a bed closed in with doors like those of a large press in the wall, while Robert slept in a little closet looking into the garden at the back of the house, the door of which opened from the parlour close to the head of his grandmother's bed. It was just large enough to hold a good-sized bed with curtains, a chest of drawers, a bureau, a large eight-day clock, and one chair, leaving in the centre about five feet square for him to move about in. There was more room as well as more comfort in the bed. He was never allowed a candle, for light enough came through from the parlour, his grandmother thought, so he was soon extended between the widest of cold sheets, with his knees up to his chin, and his thoughts following his lost father over all spaces of the earth with which his geography book had made him acquainted. He was in the habit of leaving his closet, and creeping through his grandmother's room before she was awake, or at least before she had given any signs to the small household that she was restored to consciousness, and that the life of the house must proceed. He therefore found no difficulty in liberating Shargar from his prison, except what arose from the boy's own unwillingness to forsake his comfortable quarters for the fierce encounter of the January blast which awaited him. But Robert did not turn him out before the last moment of safety had arrived, for by the aid of signs known to himself, he watched the progress of his grandmother's dressing, an operation which did not consume much of the morning, scrupulous as she was with regard to neatness and cleanliness, until Betty was called in to give her careful assistance to the final disposition of the bed, when Shargar's exit could be delayed no longer. Then he mounted to the foot of the second stair, and called in a keen whisper, "'No, Shargar, cut for the life of ye!' And down came the poor fellow, with long, gliding steps, ragged and reluctant, and without a word or a look, launched himself out into the cold, and sped away he knew not whither. As he left the door, the only suspicion of light was the dull and doubtful shimmer of the snow that covered the street, keen particles of which were blown in his face by the wind, which, having been up all night, had grown very cold, and seemed delighted to find one unprotected human being whom it might badger at its own bitter will. Outcast Shargar, where he spent the interval between Mrs. Falconer's door and that of the school, I do not know. There was a report amongst his schoolfellows that he had been found by Scroggy, the fish-cadger, lying at full length upon the back of his old horse, which, either from compassion or indifference, had not cared to rise up under the burden. They said likewise that when accused by Scroggy of housebreaking, though nothing had to be broken to get in, only a string with the peculiar knot on the invention of which the cadger prided himself, to be undone, all that Shargar had to say in his self-defence was that he had a terrible sore whelm, and that the horse was warmer nor the stints in the yard, and he had done him no ill, nay even drawn a hair from his tail, which would have been a difficult feat, seeing the horse's tail was as bare as his hoof. End. Chapter 6